Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 35, and today I have the pleasure to be joined by Jake Friedman of Schneider Electric. Jake is focused on microgrids and uh, saving the world one microgrid at a time. Jake, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Energy Radio. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Great to be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Energy Radio. I've been listening to it for a while, and um, yeah, I'm psyched to, to talk to you today. So great job on the podcast today, and I hope I can live up to everything you've done. Well, you're far too kind, but uh, it's great to have uh, a listener on the show and, and uh, great to have somebody uh, of your caliber and from your uh, team with us. And uh, I know you've been working closely with our Lisa Barber uh, and uh, mm-hmm. trying to, uh, to look at opportunities together. But um, maybe before we start on the actual nuts and bolts of, of uh, microgrid and where we see the industry going, Jake, maybe just give our listeners a background on, on who you are uh, your uh, origin story, what brought you to today, and some of the fun things you've worked on, and then we'll we'll dive in and we'll uh, we'll we'll mix it up around microgrids. Sure, yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, background started out in chemical engineering and and uh, moved into pretty quickly into the energy space. I I started out in um, the hydrogen and fuel cell space, um, working for a company at, at that time called Proton Energy Systems. Um, where I was developing really fundamental R&D and, you know, solving failure mechanisms and things like that with the, with the technology, um, deep in the electrochemistry and, and all that. And then I kind of slowly moved from the, call it the linoleum to the carpet um, out of the lab and, and more towards the business and front end side. Uh, so moved through to, you know, worked on a lot of um, product development efforts and uh, government contract type of stuff, and then more towards the towards the commercial product, and into into uh, fuel cells, and that's how I I got into the the on-site generation space. Was um, I moved to a company called UTC Power at the time? Now they're now they're Dusan Fuel Cell, uh, and developed a lot of combined heat and power fuel cells, running on natural gas, um, and then moved from there to Schneider Electric, where I was able to expand into more traditional CHP and, and advanced microgrids with all kinds of mixes of assets, solar generators, CHP, battery energy storage, and advanced con- controls and such. So that's kind of my my history. Somewhere along the way, I got an MBA in, in finance and moved more towards uh, the business side. Okay, cool. So you start you start in the hydrogen space. You get your, your kind of really specific R&D, really specific fuel. You kind of broaden as you go into fuel cells a bit more um, open-minded in terms of fuels carving out this technology, and now in the microgrid space, you're you're fuel agnostic maybe, and and uh, just want to do uh, you know projects that make sense. Is that kind of a fair summary of your your career? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um it's all about solving customer problems to me. So I've, I've just kind of expanded my tool set and. Um, yeah, I think we're in an awesome time for that. We've got so many technologies that are commercialized and ready to deploy, and and um, and can be mixed together in unique ways, and and uh, kind of standardized more and more. And and we have the ability to to solve customer problems in in many more ways than we did, at least at the start of my career. I'm sure you've seen the same kind of progression um, in this space. So it's it's an exciting time. Now, a little birdie tells me in that technology development piece that you have a couple uh, 
technology patents to your name. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, uh, when I was kind of deep in the in the electrochemic electrochemical engineering side and the R and D, we're we're um, developing new electrochemical cell designs. So there there um, different designs for electrolyzers and and fuel cells, and uh, one or two of them are designed to solve a, a, a particular failure mechanism or two in those cells. So uh, I know that you had talked to a gentleman from Hydrogenics, and uh, he kind of got into some of that with you last on the last uh, podcast, so that brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> Seems like a distant memory for, from now, from um, but it was it was fun. It was cool to develop, advance the state of the art, develop new technologies, and and all that. So it, that was fun. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's amazing how what what is old is becoming new again. You know, here in Ontario, we've just yep. finished kind of a wave of CHP deployment. Um, and, you know, our founder, Martin Lunsink, he recalls the previous wave of, of CHP in the late 80s and early 90s. And you've mentioned, you know, hydrogen early in your career with Proton. And 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 now we're, you know, we have, we have a, an individual uh, who is, is going to focus almost exclusively on hydrogen moving forward. And he remembers yeah, wow. 20 20 years ago when, you know, he, he talks about Proton and he was at, uh, at Ballard. And, and so, you know, that hydrogen story is, is coming back again. So, you know, this whole thing about what, what's old is new again is, is, is exciting because it's not really what's old. Like it's a, it's a new incarnation yep. of it and it's adapted and it's developed and it's, I think it's ready for prime time. Um, so yeah, let's, I agree. I think, yeah, it's fun. To, it's fun to see that it's, we're, we always kind of, talk about this hockey stick curve in the hydrogen and fuel cell space and we're kind of finally getting there it's been a, a second wave so it's it's exciting to see there's some some new stuff going on and and uh advancing the old stuff as well yeah and and let's before we there's so much stuff here to unpack the, the, the fuel cell piece you know i i and maybe it's just my lack of knowledge of the space but like the fuel so we, we've always always kicked around fuel cells and and you know it, it seems yeah. like they have a space. They don't have a space. You've clearly been in it uh, on the R&D side, on the commercialization side. Um, perhaps wasn't on our agenda today, but what's your kind of view of where fuel cells fit? Are they, are they, do they fit in a stationary power application? Are they only a fit in, in uh, transportation? Like what's your read of the, in what type of fuel? Let's, let's, you know, pause there just for a minute. Cause I think you bring a lot of yeah. uh, experience to the fuel cell discussion. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, fuel cell, I mean, I was drawn to fuel cells because the, the fundamental chemistry, the overall chemical equation, if you will, is, is fundamentally simple, right? You got, you're, you're combining hydrogen and, and air, or oxygen, and making water and electricity. So I was, I was really drawn to that. I said, this is, you know, it's all, could be all solid state, no moving parts. You know, this is really cool technology. As I got into it, of course, you know, once you dig into the, the actual what's going on inside that fuel cell, it's much more complicated than that. There's all kinds of materials and different states of, of matter, <clears throat> excuse me, um, gas, liquid, and, and solid, and you got to manage all that. Um, so I think the, the fundamentals of fuel cells are still true. I mean, it's still a, a you know, generally solid state technology, minimal moving parts. It has the potential, and and really, I think we've proven in in the market now that um, it can exceed you know availability of of mechanical equipment, 
um, minimize service calls and things like that and achieve high efficiencies and all that. Um, the problem in the market is still a, uh, it's still a, a cost problem. So it's a, it's a chicken or egg situation. You know, it's, if you look at the volumes of, um, you know, let's say high efficiency gas engines, uh, versus the volumes of fuel cells that are sold. I mean, it's just, you got to get that volume to get the cost down and you're not going to get the, the, the volume until you get the cost down, of course. Um, right. in the meantime, what, you know, one misconception I had in the fuel cell industry is I thought that engines had kind of hit their peak and they'd seen their, their, their limit for, for efficiency and such. And, and that's not really true. I mean, people are really advancing, um, these, these high efficiency gas engines and they're, they're achieving incredible efficiency and, and, um, low cost and such. So it's, uh, it's, um, I don't know if that totally answers your question. I think fundamentally, it's a it's still yeah. a cost problem to me sure. for fuel cells. I think you you spoke you're speaking to you know this is a broad space with energy and every every situation is unique, right? And there are so many technologies. Um, and so for for folks like yourselves and for us and for those who are evaluating you know different options, there are a lot of options and we need to cast a wide net. Um, is there a particular yeah. space where you see like is it the smaller end? Is it more of a multi-res or a small institutional application that fits for a for a fuel cell uh, application in a stationary power play. Yeah, I, I would say for stationary, to me, um, there's a kind of a mid-size range where it's the best technical fit. I think you. I think from what we've seen in in um, engine products on the market, for example. There's a you know they they really start hitting their their high efficiency at let's say four or five hundred kilowatts just very generally speaking right so um, and then as you get to the the big multi megawatt engines you can really achieve some high efficiency so I think efficiency is electrical efficiency is one of the biggest drivers for selection of of technology in our space um, so if I if I stick with that metric um, the the size where a fuel cell can really fit is uh, is in that you know up to a couple megawatts you know hundreds of kilowatts up to a couple megawatt size because they can really scale they actually scale a lot better than uh, combustion technologies in terms of electrical efficiency you can you can go smaller with a fuel cell and still retain pretty high electrical efficiency right right is it this is perhaps an unfair uh, comparison but in some ways is the fuel cell arc as a technology somewhat similar to the micro turbine arc at least my view of it and that is that you know it came to the marketplace and it was you know fundamentally a good technology but perhaps you know wasn't quite ready for for the for the big the big dance so to speak didn't maybe have the mm -hmm. service structure in the case of the micro turbines and and maybe perhaps some people have been around for a while got a bad name and, and isn't being considered, and I, I'm seeing it now in microturbines that, that they are getting kind of the airplay that they in certain applications. Would you say the same is true for fuel cells, where they had a they had a foray and maybe they weren't quite ready, and 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 they should be considered again in, in some of our projects? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think along those lines, the first kind of wave of commercialization of fuel cells really put a lot of units out there um, in the industry, in the fuel cell industry. We had discovered uh, certain issues that people maybe didn't, didn't really know about until you got, 
you know, a lot of units fielded. Um, like the impact of uh, peak shave gas and refinery gas on on fuel cells, uh, for example, in uh, um, I think we found that out in New Jersey. There's some impacts there, um, but um, but yeah, I think I think now nowadays you've got you can you can look to all that field experience and you can actually crunch the data and see the the fleet availability of fuel cells and what kind of real real world performance they can they can deliver. And I think that gives confidence to, to actually deploy them in a bigger way now. I think you still have the, the, the cost problem, um, but that, you know, they are making progress in the industry on that. So in our microgrids, we do, um, we do integrate fuel cells uh, every now and again, still kind of niche, I would say for us. Uh, and maybe, maybe I would argue in the, in the microgrid industry in, in general, but I think there is a play for, for fuel cells um, especially in that, that overall microgrid context. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point and maybe this is, this will allow us to, uh, maybe transition to the, the topic we want to talk about, which is microgrids, but you talked yeah. a bit about, about this, um, you know, this, this time horizon and, and having enough, you know, operating hours under our belt. And I think what I have experienced in, project development and construction and operation is that, you know, when you're first evaluating a project opportunity, you as a client or as a developer, you look at it and it's a very abstract in some ways, if you haven't done it many times, it's an abstract concept. You can do the math. You can say, Hey, here's the first cost. Here's the running cost. Um, mm -hmm. You can, you can do that analysis, but some of the things that are harder to quantify and harder to really kind of get your, your head and your heart around to be a little bit soft on the topic is things like uptime and other, you know, intangible benefits that, you know, it, it takes 10 years or 15 years of running an asset to, you know, to, for you to experience what the value of, of having a microgrid that can island in the event of a winter storm or have a have a fuel cell that um, can can experience high uptime, how valuable that is. It's hard to evaluate that unless you've been through it. Would, are you seeing some of that? Yeah. Are you you've been you've been around in the industry now for a while? Do you, do you have the same view or? It, no, I totally agree. I, I'm I'm almost. Uh... Maybe I shouldn't be surprised by now, but I'm I'm almost still I'm still surprised when I talk to customers and um, and they can't really quantify the value that that you're just describing here. It's it's you really have to walk them through it and say, you know, hey, look, you know, you had a power shut off a couple of weeks ago and you had to send a hundred people home. What kind mm -hmm. of productivity do you think that cost you? And uh, I think it's probably just kind of a diffusion of responsibility problem in in organizations because the the people making the decision on the on site generation um, aren't necessarily directly impacted in their budgets and such by by those by those uptime problems. So so that might be part of it. Um, I would love to see us as an industry really really uh, push for some kind of standards of how to quantify that stuff. For behind the meter customers, you know, there's there's standards for the utility industry. There's standards for um, the military, for example, um, and there's some learnings from there that we can pull into to kind of the commercial industrial customers and and behind the meter customers. But we don't really have a real strong 
standard of how to calculate that stuff. Um, so that might be one you know area where we can improve it as an industry. But I, I totally agree with you. It's it's still a it's still a sell to to try to get customers to value to really quantify the the uptime and and things, all these well, benefits I, that we can bring. Yeah, and I think until we get there, one of the ways we can do it is just to tell the stories. And and I, that for us, that's part of what Energy Radio is. And you know, I love to tell a story of a little uh, cogen we did in in Windsor, Ontario, in in the shadow of the the big GM towers in Detroit across the Detroit River, and. We, we put in a three and a half megawatt uh, gas turbine uh, for a salt uh, evaporator plant. And so they pull yep. salt out of the ground under the river and, and, and they sell it for, you know, your plate and mine. And, um, and, and so they, they put it in a little bit bigger than they needed, uh, had the ability to island. So essentially, you know, I would call it a microgrid. Um, and what we didn't know at the time or didn't have an appreciation for was this plant is in the shadow of what is going to become the Gordie Howe Bridge, which is going to connect a new bridge to connect Windsor and, and Detroit. Oh, Gordie Howe. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Hey, 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 Hartford. <laughs> I, love, I, my, I love it. I love got it. my whaler shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, the, for, those, for those who didn't pay for the video version of this podcast, uh, uh, Jake's wearing a Hartford Whalers shirt. And for those who are uh, new to the industry, too young to know who the Hartford Whalers are, go Google it. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so the, 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 the uh, bridge requires a lot of, of course, pile driving. And so this pile driving yep. has, has wreaked havoc on the local distribution system. It's causing uh, power quality issues throughout the whole distribution system from the local utility. And But this salt mine is none the wiser because they've just opened the breaker and they run between service intervals, islanded, and they have had no issues. Yep. But you know, had they not put in cogen, had they not put in cogen with these features, um, they, they they wouldn't have that functionality, and they'd be interrupting their process and have downtime on, on making salt. And so, you know, it's a fun story to tell. It has a tie-in with you know your Hartford Whalers and Gordy Howe and all that fun stuff. But how could you ever quantify that? You know, when putting together a business case, right? You, some of it you just you have yeah. to tell the story, and hopefully it sinks in. So. Um, you know, it's it's all fun stuff. So let, let's take that as a as a launching pad to talk about microgrids and 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 you know your space in it. Um, maybe maybe just kind of from that broad opening, Jake. I'll let you have the floor and and kind of where where you guys fit into it, what you're pursuing, where you see the opportunities, and then we can go from there. Yeah, great. That's a that's a great case study, by the way. I, I love that. That's that's um um. That's a great case study of how you know day to day operations can be impacted by by uh, electrical downtime and and we at Schneider Electric Schneider Electric says you know that uh, elect electric how does it go I'm probably going to botch this but it's I think it's electricity we consider electricity a human right or mm -hmm. energy a human right um, I forget the exact terminology but. Uh, but it is, it's so important day to day. I mean, we, we actually kind of a funny little story on that note. Um, the other, the other night we lost power because we had a transformer, we had a, a brief windstorm and a transformer blew up down the street. And uh, I've got a couple toddlers at home and, and man, my five-year-old, she was so thrown off by that. She was literally crying, you know, she, what's going to happen? The lights are out and wow. it's, it's just a you know a feeling of stability. Um, it just reminded me of that 
as you say, kind of the soft side of, of the business. And, and that stuff is really important. You know, it's like people have this uh, stability, feeling of stability from, um, from things happening the way they do. And, you know, nobody thinks about where the power is coming from and, and, uh, and uh, until it goes out, of course. Um, but anyway, so, so Schneider's role in that is, uh, is really to make the stuff that goes between the power generation and uh, the loads. So we make all the, you know, we're a manufacturer um, and we make all this, you know, all the, the power distribution gear and, and uh, metering and monitoring systems and, and automation equipment and, and all the services that go along with that engineering and such um, to really to bring the power from the generation source to the loads. We don't really make, we don't make generators, we don't make uh, solar panels, we don't make stuff that produces electricity. <clears throat> and likewise, we don't make, uh, generally make appliances that, that use electricity, but we make everything that kind of helps the electricity go from one point to the other. So right. that's kind of our role. And, and I think microgrids is really a, an evolution for us um, as we get to a smarter electrical system and more automation and, and, um, and more advanced type of systems. Uh, microgrid is, is right in there in that story uh, for, for Schneider Electric. We, we talk about it as um, the old stuff as gray boxes. We sell a lot of gray boxes. That's kind of the dumb electrical equipment. You go into any electrical room, you'll find Schneider stuff there pretty much. Uh, and it's, it's gray and it's, you know, flip a switch back and forth with your hand. And um, that's kind of the, the, the big dumb gray boxes, if you will. And, and uh, we sell plenty of that stuff and we do a good job of it. Um, and now we're progressing more into more advanced type of systems with a lot of controls and software in there with, with the copper and the steel that goes in those, those boxes. We, in our, in our shop, we would uh, use the term big copper and little copper. So the big copper would be, you know, the three phases of bus bar that's carrying 15,000 volts. And the, the little copper is yep. the, the, the smarts that says open breaker, close breaker, that kind of stuff. So, um, so, so yeah, you, you, you really provide both to the marketplace. Yep. And more and more, I would say software, I think, you know, Schneider's, um, more and more into software and uh, productivity type of type of stuff. How to make your machines work better, um, servicing of equipment, and all that. Uh, that's kind of where where Schneider's is um, is headed. So let, let's of course, take, we're, we're big. Uh, yeah, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. You finish. Uh, we're we're big conglomerate, of course. Um, so growing by acquisition, and so you'll you'll see all these acquisitions of different companies and if you follow them you'll see more and more on the on the software side um, in the past few years building on all this all this uh, hardware infrastructure and, and uh, big copper as you call it cool so let, let's I, I, I'll start by saying that I have a little bit of a bone to pick with the microgrid term and what I mean by that is it's it's currently and what I'm, what I'm going to ask at the end is I want your definition, because to me, it's become the hot, sexy term. Uh, it's maybe being, re, you know, being replaced by hydrogen now that that is becoming the hot, sexy term. But 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 microgrid is still something everybody's all hot and bothered about microgrids. But in, in my opinion, we've been doing this for a while. Um, you know, yep. if we look at, you know, there's 25 year old cogen plants here in Ontario who, you know, the the, the former Heinz 
uh, catch-up plant in uh, Leamington, just south of Windsor. They've been operating isolated from the grid with two turbines as a microgrid for 30 years now. Um, so part of yep. me says, part of me says this is good. It's awareness. It's important. But part of me says, you know, let, let's cool our jets. We've been doing this for a while. But that's me, you know, maybe on a bad day. That's kind of where I land. I, more important is what you, I just wanted you to know where I stand. But let, let's let's hear from you in terms of, you know, what do you define as a microgrid? And then kind of why the recent uptick? And am I wrong? Is it is it something more sophisticated than that? Am I wrong in my definition? You know, but let's talk about microgrids in general at this point. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's funny. You go to a, a you know, we're in the CHP business, right? So <laughs> you go to any CHP conference and that's what everybody's saying. Like, hey, we've been doing this for a long time. What's with this? Right. My advice is just ride the wave, man. This is, <laughs> this is like, it's a new sexy, a lot of it is uh, just kind of, um, honestly, a lot of it is, is, is marketing and kind of bringing what we've done for a long time to the masses with this kind of new sexy terminology um, from a technical perspective, uh, you know, internally at Schneider, we call the, the stuff that we've done for, for decades, like you said, islanding um, generators and, and combined heat and power and all that, we would call that kind of microgrid 1.0. And, okay. and we, we say that, you know, nowadays we're kind of into microgrid 2.0. And, and what that means is we are adding to all those great fundamentals of microgrids that we've built for for decades with with uh, synchronous gens that are that are working together to serve loads. Um, the case study that you just mentioned is probably one of them. And now we're bringing in all these renewables and inverter-based resources um, so that we can mesh in kind of new new generation sources. And hydrogen, you know, is and will be um, more of that as as we move forward. I think, and also more advanced stuff on the on the load side so more advanced kind of um control of of loads uh so that you're kind of tying more much more of the load side of the equation into all this great power plant engineering and and experience that we have for for decades now you think of i, I think of you know traditional microgrids and old you know 10 20 years ago chp as it's a power plant it's in its own building it's sitting in you know, on the other side of the campus, um, and that's a great microgrid. You know, on you know, in that kind of example. And nowadays, we would go deeper into the into the load side. We might put solar on the buildings downstream of that central plant. We might put batteries around the campus, and and uh, we might control the loads through the building automation systems and make them match well with the with the price of energy coming from the from the microgrid sources and and just make it a more um or that's what we call more of an advanced type of microgrid system so I, I think it's a natural natural transition but it's it's funny yeah i mean i i agree with you we kind of in a way it's it stings a little because because those of us who have been doing on-site generation with chp and everything and you know we sort of didn't get our didn't get our credit <laughs> in a way uh over the past uh 10, 20 years, and now it's finally coming to pass. So, um, well, I guess so. Yeah, uh, ride the wave on that. Yeah, <laughs> like good spot. You know, those of us who've been wearing tie dye or high waisted jeans, you know, that's now coming back into fashion. So we just got to keep wearing it, I guess, right? Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, I'm glad I, I I kept my high waters from the from the late '80s. You know. <laughs> okay. 
So let's let's talk through, you know, maybe somebody has, you know, a large load that they're managing and they're looking at generation or maybe they have, you know, generation or maybe even microgrid 1.0. Um, let's yep. walk through kind of the steps of, you know, how do you go to an ultimate kind of, you know, microgrid 2.0? What are the steps in terms of, you know, it feels like, you know, there are so many options and, and, and things that, that can be done that, Sometimes I think people might be overwhelmed in terms of where to start, right? So maybe talk to us through how do you walk along somebody to 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 navigate, you know, building out maybe or maybe it's in one fell swoop. You know, how do you how do you mm-hmm. identify the technical solutions and then also how do you get the financial implementability of a of a of an opportunity? Yeah, good question. A uh, couple ways, I think, to approach that one. Um, I would say in general, uh, in general in the market today, um, based on where you are largely, geography, and based on, um, of course, your utility costs and, and things like that, you, you can start mo- most easily with, with the economic side. So mm. if, you, if you're in a particular area, um, you know, you might have grant incentives that are available that are incentivizing certain technologies. You might have um, renewable energy credits that, uh, that are highly valuable in certain geographies, and that might drive you ter- towards uh, particular technologies. So um, a good case study we have is uh, Montgomery County, Maryland um, Public Safety Headquarters. They had a they had a pretty slick um, backup power system, um, lots of redundancy, uh, nice equipment, nice new equipment, um, and we we approach and they wanted to do more of a, an advanced microgrid there uh, to enhance the the um, the backup power capability, be able to operate business as usual, not just backing up certain loads and things like that. And so when we when we approach that one, we we um, we looked at you know what's really going to pencil here in terms of on-site generation, uh, and that was our starting point. And and because we have all the all these great controls, capabilities, and and equipment to make stuff work together um, easily, which in the past might not have been that e- very easy, uh, we can we can select those generation sources first based on what what's going to pencil the best, and then and then make them work together in one single microgrid system. So that's what we did. We ended up with uh, two megawatts of solar. Uh, it was right at the maximum of what they allow for net metering in the in the in the state. Um, there's a pretty good renewable energy credit market to help that stuff pencil. We we selected uh, combined heat and power based on the the base load of the building. Um, they had some um, some enhancements that they needed on their on their chilled water system. So we had an absorption chiller for that, and then we. And then we uh, we actually removed two of the backup generators, which you know intuitively is not intuitive that you would want to do that. But we removed two of them, and then we kept two of them, and we made all that stuff work together in a in an advanced microgrid um, to serve that that critical facility. So your your suggestion to somebody who says, "Hey, I, I like this. I think there's some things for my campus or my facility." Um, your your recommendation is, you know start with you know what the economic drivers are and then the technical details it will kind of filter out as a result yeah gen- generally speaking i would say so yeah yeah start with um 
yeah, I mean, we, we, we were be opportunistic about it, I guess is how I would put it, you know, opportunity, opportunistically look for the incentives, the grants, what's, what's, what's going to pencil best in, in your area. And then, um, and then build from that. And it, I know that each jurisdiction is, is unique. So, you know, I know this is in some ways a loaded question, but maybe if you could, are there, are there kind of certain categories of, of, of financial drivers that you are seeing, um, kind of that are maybe broad three or four pillars that are driving uh, microgrids? Yeah, I would say uh, number one is utility, retail utility rates. So, mm. um, so to make on-site generation work, you got to have, you know, high enough blended utility rates. Um, so that, you know, there are certain geographies where that, where that's uh, the case, you'll have like kind of tier one, states in the US, for example. Um, I would say number two is uh, grants and incentives. Those are still still a big play uh, to to drive what what you select for your for your project. And what are so, the grants and incentives uh, intended to promote, Jake? Is it is it technology adoption? Is it uh, renewable energy as a, as you mentioned, renewable energy credits, is it local economic drivers? Like what, what is predominantly driving those grants or incentives? I think it's mostly energy efficiency and, and, uh, renewable energy and sustainability type of goals. So like in Maryland, um, we, we secured multiple incentives for the combined heat and power system. And those are all driven by, you know, you got to hit a certain efficiency, um, right? And I think you had a program in Toronto that was similar, that uh, Energy Ontario, uh, what was it called? Ener um, oh, it was, it was uh, yeah, originally it was the Ontario Power Authority and then it got merged in the into yeah. the independent electricity system operator. But nonetheless, it was, yeah. uh, yep. it was, it was a energy, con it was an electricity reduction program um, so, you know, compressors and, you know, lighting retrofits and, you know, all that stuff qualified. So did CHP provided it, it met a minimum efficiency threshold. Um, so, and are you seeing right. any incentives that are, are, are driving microgrids from a, uh, a reliability and making power supply more robust? Are you seeing those develop as well? Yeah, there's definitely incentives around that more and more now. Um, in some states, they're taking existing programs and they're adding requirements or maybe some extra funding if you can make it uh, resilient, if you can make the project uh, resilient against a uh, grid outage. So, for example, in New York, um, you know, I've secured uh, NYSERDA funding on, on a lot of projects in the past and, and there was extra funding available if you were able to, to island your system. Um, during grid outage or, or, and then later it became a requirement that you had to island to get the money. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely seeing that trend of, of, you know, using these incentive programs um, to go beyond the, the, you know, maybe the original sustainability and, and energy efficiency targets and into more and more resiliency. And then there's some programs that we've, we've played in, in, in um, Schneider that are really, dedicated to microgrids and th those tend to be kind of limited grant programs with a with a set horizon just trying to stimulate the industry and and um 
and uh, get get things more and more commercialized. And when when you talk about microgrids, I, I've mentioned islanding uh, a couple times, and 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 for me, that's you know, island, creating an electrical island for that campus or that industrial site from the rest of the distribution system. That's my definition. Is that always? I mean, when we talk about microgrid, um, is that is that inherent in the in the description that it, that has that it either is islanded or has the capacity to island or is that not necessarily implied when we talk about microgrid? Ah, it depends how you get paid. <laughs> we, we like to in Schneider sometimes we 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 use the term kind of loosely, um, and you know we will do uh, quote unquote microgrids that don't necessarily island, even though our our target is really the resiliency that's that's like a major we think a major value prop for for projects yeah. sometimes you'll get into projects and it's it's just not that important in the end to to a customer and you can't you can't get them to to see it so you so you build a, a lower cost system that is uh grid paralleled only um mm. but i think you know i think most definitions require the the uh the resiliency piece i think that is a major that's a major value prop you know, for all the reasons we talked about in the, the case study that you brought up and and um, and all that. So, so yeah, I think most people would say a microgrid it has to have the resiliency islandable capability. Right. And and then do you do you step back and you make an assessment of the the different um, kind of reliability of the generation sources? I mean, you know, you obviously you need to have on a cloudy, a cloudy, non-windy day, you need to have an ability to island. That 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 just fits into all the technical development stages. Is making sure you have the infrastructure to do it, and is that where storage plays in, kind of thing, too? Yeah, um, you bring up a great point. I think um, there's some kind of misconceptions when you when you talk to to, to uh, customers and people in the industry um, about how you know particular in particular solar works <laughs> right so uh, people tend to think that solar when the sun's shining you can power your loads and when the sun isn't shining um, you got to have something else but it's not quite that simple right you, you dig into the details and it's like well you know like you said a cloudy day clouds are rolling in and out and powers going up and down and in spikes and, and troughs so you really have to look at it as an entire system um, and I think it's really important to set that everybody has expectations set properly on what the system is actually going to do. Um, in, you know, I, I encounter this all the time. You probably do too. People, people think, hey, I'm getting a microgrid. I'm not even going to know when the power's out. It, my my, my uh, facility is just going to hum along. And right. you can certainly design a microgrid that way. Most people don't want to pay for that, that level, that high level of... Uh, of operation, uh, most people can tolerate a transition time, um, just as an example. And so, uh, it's really important to kind of set those expectations. What do you, what do you, what do you want to pay for? Do you want that premium platinum plated capability, um, or do you really need, you know, are you okay with like a transition to island mode and 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 uh, and then bringing your your loads up sequentially and that kind of thing? So those are kind of some important technical details that 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 I think are, are really important to to um, to set with with customers and and all stakeholders. And we've talked a lot about the generation side of a microgrid. You mentioned 
you know, the, also the load side. Talk to me a bit about your philosophy or some of the options available to, you know, reach deep into the load, uh, whether it be a campus or an industrial uh, application. Talk to me a bit about how that fits into the whole microgrid uh, ecosystem. Yeah, um, I think that's another area where a lot of uh, customers and microgrid end users are uh, not always the most highly educated. Um, like we talked about earlier, uh, there's different stakeholders in a in an organization, right? And not all of them understand the nuances of their of their power system. So when we when we um, develop a microgrid, we are we are usually trying to teach the the customer about their own loads and and take and trying to get them to kind of bucket their loads in. We use three bucket. We tend to use three buckets. We say uh, essential, non-essential, and critical loads. And so critical loads are usually behind an uninterruptible power supply. Those are like data centers and and things like that. Um, essential loads are are things that are required to to keep the the building safe and and uh, and protected. Let's say like your um, let's say uh, like your uh, uh, you know maybe your fire system, maybe your maybe your lighting systems and things like that. Those those could be essential loads or life safety loads. And then there's non-essential loads that are just for comfort or um, or making a, um, giving the building a, a, the ability to be to to be useful. So people actually being able to do their work. So when you when you bucket loads in that way, then you can kind of get um, the customer to understand what do I really need to be on and when what can I tolerate when I'm when I'm islanding when the grid is down um, versus uh, versus what what do I actually uh, actually have to have up and running at all times right and and, and uh, so I guess the the, the the important question now is to talk about the load and the generation and where, where does Schneider fit into this whole thing like what what what's your kind of ability to solve problems in this space and maybe there's a couple ways to do that but but talk to me a little bit kind of here as we've gone through the whole microgrid talk to me about where you and your team can can fit into a space like this yeah so our, our team would would do the conceptual level design uh, of all that stuff we would do you know let's say a feasibility analysis or feasibility study with the customer to kind of size up um, based on economics and technical requirements what what kind of uh, generation sources could work for a particular site, and then also dig into the that load side and figure out, you know, what are these critical, essential, and non-essential loads that a customer has. Um, you know, sometimes we we make you know a lot of the stuff that can optimize those loads. We make uh, drive motor drives and 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 things like that, for example. So we might recommend that as a part of this whole microgrid system we we optimize those loads and we put soft starters and drives to make it to make it easier to, to start those things up when the grid is down um, and then we would take it you know we, we work in a very highly consultative way with the customer to kind of set the proper expectations and get them to understand what is this system um, what does it have to do for you what is it nice to have and then what is it what is it going to do what are we designing for um, so that's that's a really important Part of, of what we do and then we 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 will specify all the 
all the non-Schneider stuff um, at a high level. Is this going to be a one megawatt CHP? Is it going to be a, you know, rooftop solar, all that? Uh, and then, of course, the Schneider stuff, which is the the microgrid controls, uh, the, any new power equipment, um, any high-level design work that has to be done, rewiring existing, and all that. So we really take a pretty comprehensive look at the at the um, at the project. Um, we don't go, you know, my particular group. We don't go real deep into the into the technical details. We have other groups in Schneider, and then we have outside partners like CEM to to do that kind of thing. Um, but we we take a, a very broad consultative approach to the to the customer uh, customer needs. And then and then commercially, um, you just kind of wait for the PO to come in, or like you know, how do you guys in, engage uh, commercially on a, on a project that would hopefully go ahead? Yeah, good question. Yeah, <laughs> it's um. It's kind of a mixed bag, I would say. I think Schneider's got a lot of, we're, we're such a big company with a lot of different, uh, what do they call them, cylinders of excellence sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> we, have, we have so many different approaches to the market. So um, we have a, a lot of stuff that goes through channel partners. Um, we have development partners who are out there designing and building microgrids and using our stuff as the, the brains of the microgrid. Um, energy as a service partners who are, you know, investing in these things. And then, and then we have some direct sales where, where uh, our team will go in and directly sell this, this uh, overall project to the customer um, and try to try to meet their needs with whatever, whatever that means, whether it's just an equipment sale or they want a full end to end solution. So really kind of a mixed bag. Sure. And you, you talked a bit about energy as a service in there. Um, maybe, maybe can you elaborate on, you know, what that looks like and how, um, you know, how that works? Yeah. So that's really kind of, in, in my mind, the next phase of microgrid uh, growth um, is, is this new, relatively new business model of energy as a service. And it, it's, you know, much like the technical side, it's really building off of what has been done already for decades, you know, solar power purchase agreements and and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we're we are going pretty heavy into that method of um, of uh, of doing business. We're you know I've, you know you can find all the press releases on this new joint venture that we had started called Alpha Structure. They're 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 bringing energy as a service, uh, fully wrapped microgrid energy as a service to to larger customers. Um, we just had an announcement out um, a week or two ago on, on a new venture that we're spinning up, which is um, to, intended to bring energy as a service to, uh, to kind of the, the mid-size space, one, one to five megawatt type of, type of project size. So the intent there is to really make it just as easy to get a microgrid as it is to, to, to lease a car, if you will. So. Um, you know, our customers. I'm sure you see in the in the industry. Our, our customers don't necessarily want to know all the all the details of the, of the technical. They don't need to know whether it's a programmable logic controller uh, or a you know automatic transfer switch that's out in their on their property, right? They just want the outcome. So that's right. what this business model does. It really makes it makes it very easy to for a customer to sign sign on the dotted line, if you will, to get a certain outcome. From this 
from this uh, microgrid project. And then all the technical um, details, all the, you know, securing grant incentives, all the financial transaction stuff, that's all sort of in the background. And that outcome? That's kind of where we're going. How is that outcome typically, are they buying, you know, is the outcome defined as we will always provide you reliable electricity or their their outcome is they're paying for kilowatt hours or how does that outcome get kind of established? Yeah, usually the energy as a service deals that we've done, um, there's there's a mix of, uh, of payment streams. So you would fundamentally it would be a long-term contract for energy and capacity usually. And so um, instead of paying an electric bill and let's say a gas bill today to a utility, um, they might pay an electric bill, a smaller electric bill to the utility, um, a gas bill to the gas utility, and then a, a, a bill to the, to this energy as a service company. And so that, you know, you got an extra bill to pay, but those three combined can often be cheaper than, than the two, than the two that you had before the project. So, yeah. um, so, what they're yeah. paying for is, yeah, <laughs> depending on the project, of course, but um, what they're paying for generally is is energy off of the system and then uh, capacity to be sure that it's available. And usually there's some kind of backstops in there. You know, if you're, if you're paying for energy, you're only paying for energy that um, that this uh, that, that we can produce over time from the system. And if we can't produce it, you don't pay for it. And if you're paying for capacity, usually there's a you know, we're, we're kind of ensuring that you're going to have X number of kilowatts available um, to you with, you know, when the grid is up or down. Uh, and usually there's some kind of availability behind that. We, you know, we're going to we're going to provide it and make sure it's there 90, 95, 97 percent of the time. Um, will we'll kind of vary, of course, on the based on the project. Something on that piece I've always wondered about is in an agreement like that is there is there an opportunity to go the other way in that if if you over deliver you know if there's a if there's a massive you know weather event that um you know would would have taken them down for weeks at a time and you can deliver um is there is there an do those contracts ever allow for over delivering and then and then a payment as a result yeah that's a great question um most of the deals that I've done in my career have been what we call energy service agreements, which which would be more of a fixed type of payment or a dollars per kilowatt type of payment. Whereas a lot of the deal, most people, when they think of, of something like this, they think of a power purchase agreement, which is, you know, paid in dollars per kilowatt hour produced, right? So when you're paying for dollars per kilowatt hour produced, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pay more. If if you have downtime for a week, of uh, a grid downtime for a week, and the system's up, you're gonna pay for those kilowatt hours. Um, in an energy service agreement, um, you may or may not pay for kilowatt hours that way. You may pay, you know, the same fee because you always had that capacity available, whether the grid is up or down. So it's um it's an important thing for customers to think about, and I've, I've kind of shown customers the pluses and minuses of both. Paying paying dollars per kilowatt hour isn't necessarily the best thing. Um, it it kind of seems that way because you're paying for what's produced. But if you're paying for capacity and you have an availability guarantee behind it, that can that can be better. The customer could end up with more upside. 
So right. there's um there's a couple maybe maybe that flies in the face of my comment about making it as easy as leasing a car, but there are some uh some uh, key considerations to to look at in the in the contract. Well, I've never leased a car, but I would imagine it's not uh, not straightforward either. So, Jake, as we uh, as we land the plane here, is there anything microgrid related that we have not touched on, or something that you know maybe on the horizon is exciting you, or kind of yeah, kind of want to open the floor, make sure we haven't missed anything? Yeah, I would say the. The most exciting thing to me is um, is just kind of the trend of where we're going in the industry towards towards uh, scalable, repeatable, and standardized type of systems. So I think of it as kind of analogous to the what's what we've done in the CHP world, combined heat and power. We've we started out with highly engineered systems. We got more towards you know now you have all these package type systems where you can specify what's in the box, but you have a limited menu. And more right. and more towards these productized systems, which are really just just running off of production line, um, to really get the cost down and and uh, and reliability and everything up. And we're 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 taking that same approach in Schneider, and that's our that's I think the wave of the future is to really package these systems up, very standardized controls packages, standardized equipment and designs, um, standard platforms of of equipment. You know, we're we're building. We have a, a product based on our QED2 switchboard, which is really a, a very common platform that's highly commercialized, okay. um, and uh, and and very much packaged and productized type of systems. So I think to me that's the most exciting stuff on the on the technical side in in the industry, and then of course on the on the non-technical side, these new business models of energy as a service and making it very simple to get a to get a um, what might be a, a, a fairly complex uh, project into into a facility and 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 get it done quickly and and uh, repeatably. So that that's kind of my view. That's that's what excites me. Maybe it's a little geeky, but I think your audience is pretty geeky anyway. So <laughs> hopefully hope people so. are excited about that. I hope so. And for that for that geeky audience, what what what's one thought or one question you want to leave them with? Uh, to hopefully get them thinking about uh, microgrids a bit further. Ooh, good, good question. Um, I guess I would to bring it back to the the beginning of the conversation. I would say, what the question um, would be? What would you do if the power was out for a week? If the cost you. We, we lost you there, Jake, for a minute. I'll, I'm going to ask you that again uh, because that was really good and we'll, we'll have uh, Mark clean it up. But uh, um, for our geeky audience, Jake, what's one question you would leave them with uh, as, as we go from here? Yeah, I would say um, getting back to what we talked about in the beginning of the call, uh, what would you do if your power was out for a week? What would that cost you in your facility? What would it impact in your operations, and how would it affect you? And uh, that—that's what I would—that's what I would ask. I think that that uh, that math would work out to some pretty big numbers in terms of lost revenue or uh, number of complaint calls from, you know, students or their parents for those who are operating uh, university campuses. Yep. Um, so, hey, uh, Jake, how can this has been really fun? How can people get a hold of you? What's the best way to find you and, and your team? 
Yeah, um, most of us are on LinkedIn nowadays. Um, so LinkedIn is a great way, or uh, or or at Schneider Electric, Jacob J A C O B dot Friedman F R I E D M A N at S E dot com or Schneider dash Electric dot com. Um, so yeah, that's that's the best way. And uh, yeah, I love love talking to people. I love uh, hearing from people in the industry. And um, yeah, I really appreciate the time, Matt. And and I'm I'm trying not to be too much of a fanboy, but <laughs> I, I love the uh, podcast. And I hope I added something something good to it. And keep up the good work here. I think you're you got you got a lot of good depth in um, out of your out of the ones that I've heard that you got you get a, you get into some depth that most people don't get into. So I really appreciate that and what you're doing for the industry in that way. Cool. Well, that, uh, that means the world that feedback's important. Uh, I always, I always try to, you know, have some stuff that's high level and then, you know, kind of gradually go deeper. Um, and yeah. then, um, you know, so, so we've tried to bring content to everybody. So Jake, uh, thank you very much for joining us and carving out uh, an hour of your very busy schedule. Uh, it, it was really, it, it, I'm, I'm smarter as a result and, and I hope that our geeky listeners are also uh, smarter as a result. So um, thank you very much. Thank you to Mark Charbonneau, our man behind the glass who makes us all uh, sound good and our executive producer, uh, Lisa Barber. Uh, shout out to her on her wedding anniversary today. Uh, this was episode 35 of Energy Radio uh, with uh, Jake Friedman of Schneider Electric. Uh, thank you for listening and until next time, take care and stay safe.